Baseball is exciting here in the DMV right now as the Nationals and Orioles are starting the Beltway Series, their annual meeting, going up 295. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special crossover episode of the District 34 podcast and the Yard Work podcast presented by MassInSports.com. I'm Bobby Blanco, and along with me on the District 34 side is Byron Kerr. Hello, everybody. And from the Yard Work podcast is Brian Eller calling us in via Skype. What's up, Brian? What's going on, everybody? Good to have you along with us. Like I said, it's an exciting time for baseball in the area. Um, this is, I think, for me, it's the series that I look forward to the most uh, every year between these two teams. Um, there's a whole controversy between like the fans who like both teams, or you pick a side, and then, of course, the teams are good now, so it's always a good game. Um, let's start. Last night, the Orioles take game one, 6-4. It was kind of a wacky game. Um Brian, your first thoughts on that first inning when the the Orioles kind of unloaded on Gio Gonzalez? Well, it was a little bit surprising considering Gio's had a a great start to the season. Um, And it was nice to see the offense kind of get that spark because they have been inconsistent to this point. I think when it comes to the offense for the Orioles, you know what you're going to get. They're a power-hitting team, and you certainly saw that on display uh, in the first inning. Trey Mancini continuing to, to prove that he belongs in an everyday role uh, at least in the lineup there, um, making some tough decisions for Buck Walter, which we could talk about a little bit down the road. But I know there's sort of a log jam there with some extra bench players, and it's it's tough to find time for everybody because it seems like all those guys are, are proving that they deserve a spot to be in the lineup every day. But, uh, boy, Trey Mancini is just really doing well. Um, and it was nice to see Joey Rickard to get things started off with the home run. So that was nice to see. I was going to say Joey Rickard leading off with the home run off Geo, And it was interesting because, you know, obviously – the games are both on Masson, um, and we get to see both broadcasts. And on the O's Extra pregame show, Rick Dempsey actually did say, Geo's, yes, he's off to a good start, but get him in the first inning. That's where he's the weakest. And sure enough, three home runs right off the bat. Joey Rickard leading off. Obviously, Mark Trumbo muscles one out, and uh, then Mancini follows up. So that was tough to see. On the Nats side, Byron, <laughs> um, you know, again, Geo's off to a good start, but it, it seems like, well, ironically, it's the first inning that gets him every time. Yeah, I mean, the, the talk about Gio Gonzalez all these years was, was his control. And, and what I noticed uh, at the beginning of the season was how his tempo had changed. And he had turned up the tempo. Uh, maybe that was because of Matt Weeters. And I, I thought it was really interesting that this, all this talk in the offseason was, was about, you know, why, you know, why didn't they keep Derek Norris? Why did they, why did they keep Jose Lobaton? And, and everybody comes back to me and says, oh, that's Gio's catcher. You know, that's why they keep Jose Lobaton. But, uh, you know, I, I haven't ever really gotten to the bottom of the tempo change for Gio. But I think with a pitcher like him, you know, he needs a strong catcher and a catcher that will guide him. And I think that's what Jose Lobaton did. But I think more so is he's, he's really bought into Matt Wieters in the way that Wieters wants to call games for him. And for the beginning of the year, 3-0 and with a 1.64, certainly things were, were very good. And, and Brian is absolutely correct. Rick Dempsey is absolutely correct. If you're going to get to Geo, it's going to be in the first inning. And, and for some reason, you know, they, they uh, each year, and we're going to talk about this as well, they just do not match up well with the Orioles in this series, especially when it, with it beginning at Camden Yards. And uh, it was just the worst-case scenario there at the beginning of the game. And and Gonzalez talked about it afterwards and, and uh, you know, about the placement of some of those fastballs and, and the fact they were hit him. And, and, you know, they turned – and you talked about the Trumbo one. That was the one they talked about the most, the one that was way out of the strike zone, way up high. And Trumbo, almost as if he knew it was going to be there, just crushed it. 
and uh, you know that was kind of the difference maker. And but you know you give up three home runs in the first inning, you're not gonna you're not gonna win too many ball games. You give up one or two uh, timely home runs in a game, you're not gonna win too many times. So that really put the Nationals behind the eight ball. They they were coming off uh, extra inning lost to the Phillies, coming down, uh, continuing their road trip, and and uh, with the offense the Nats had, you felt like maybe they could come. Uh, uh, make a comeback during the game, but it certainly was not the way they wanted to start and, and uh, very troubling for Gio. You mentioned um, Matt Wieters behind the, behind the plate and they, they, they him and Gonzalez liked where that ball was and that's where they wanted to. And, you know, obviously Matt Wieters returning to Camden Yards for the first time since signing with the Nats. That was a big storyline. Eight-year career with the Orioles, multiple-time All-Star, Gold Glove guy. And it was coming in that people were saying, well, what's your scouting report on these Orioles pitchers? What do you got on them? You can also say it the other way around, like, well, the Orioles know how Matt Wieters likes to call a game. Mm-hmm. And like you kind of you kind of mentioned, people are wondering, well, did Trumbo kind of know that's where he wanted the ball and that's where they were going to go and that's why he was able to get it out? Was that something that you kind of saw or you got a feel from or is that just kind of a stretch or throwing something at the wall? I mean, Mark Zuckerman and I were talking about that last night that that could be a possibility and – and, uh, you know, Trumbo uh, studies catchers just like if it's not Matt Wieters, he'd study the other catcher as well to see how he would call games. And and absolutely, that could have been a, the case. Um, but, you know, you still have to be able to hit that. And Gonzalez is not uh, Steven Strasburg he, or any Romero. He's not going to go 98, 100 miles per hour. So you could get to that fastball. And uh, if you guess and you know a fastball is coming in that certain situation, then you have a, a better chance of hitting it. And you know, hat tip and very impressive swing by Trumbo to be able to get to it. But I'm, yeah, I'm not. Anything is within the realm of possibility. Yeah. I'm not going to say that that didn't happen. Um, but you know, it works in Weeder's favor too because he knows what the Orioles hitters want to do. He's worked with them for several years, and and so uh, you know, after that, Gio Gonzalez really calmed down and did a great job. If you wipe away that, I mean, they didn't do much else against him for the rest of the game. So. Uh, you know, it was a big first inning, and, and that kind of set the tone for the game, and the, and the Nationals were playing catch-up, but Gio pitched well after that. Yeah, he went six innings um, in a time where the, the Nats' bullpen really needed him to. Um, it, we can get to the bullpen struggles later, but let's go to the mound on the other side, Brian. Uh, Kevin Gosman comes out and has a great start, a quality start, seven innings, only gave up two runs, five hits. Um, and this is something that the O's fans have been kind of waiting for since the start of the season. He was named the opening day starter, obviously, with Chris Tillman on the disabled list. Um, what did you see from Gosman that, you know, it shows signs of the season to come? Well, I think you saw just uh, the command from him. I mean, despite the offense breaking out early, I, I, the story of the game for the Orioles side was, was definitely Gosman because he needed a start like this. I mean, he was he and Dylan Bundy are supposed to be carrying this rotation, especially while Chris Tillman's, uh, you know, still getting up to speed. Um, but last night's outing was, was great to see from him. Lowered his ERA by almost a full run. Um, it's still higher than he'd like, of course, in uh, 6.63. But um, but just commanding that fastball and using it to his advantage. And, uh, Byron, you talked about the fact that, hey, Gio had the rough first inning. But after that, he really settled in. And, and um, it was kind of the pressure was not off of Kevin Gosman after after that first inning. You think putting up four runs, it was kind of just a – it could just be a go out there, throw some strikes and get those quick outs. But, um, but you, you can never do that against a, a lineup as dangerous as the Nationals. But it was nice to see Gosman um, use his pitches effectively. And I was actually surprised – uh, but in a good way to see Gosman come back out for that seventh inning. I think he was over 100 pitches after the sixth. I thought, okay, handed over to the bullpen. They brought him out for the seventh, and I think he threw 
uh, somewhere around eight to ten pitches for that for that seventh frame. It was clean. Got out there and let the bullpen did did his job. Although uh, it was a little scary towards the end there for Oriole fans, but uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But yeah, uh, definitely to that. Really encouraging to see that from Gosman. So. Uh, yeah. I thought it was interesting that the Nationals decided to have Wilmer Defoe as leadoff hitter. He swung at a lot of first pitches, and I think that helped Gosman a lot as well, which kind of hamstrung the rest of the lineup with Worth, Harper, Zimmerman, and Murphy coming up. And, uh, you know, giving Trey Turner a day off, I think, really played into this game a little bit as well because the Nationals just never really seemed to be able to get off to a good start, you know, to use a, a little bit of a cliche there. It was kind of a surprise because Turner has been healthy, but he did go over 12 in Philly, right. so... And, you know, Dusty's thinking, you know, give the guy a day off, give him some time to breathe and think about it. Um, and we'll see. I'll expect Turner to be in the starting lineup tonight for game two. Um, but, yeah, let's go to that ninth inning. Um, Brian, obviously, <clears throat> Orioles fans were kind of holding their breath, but kind of deep sigh of relief after a huge base running blunder by the Nationals. I mean, actually, let's go to Brian, uh, Byron, sorry, BK. You knew you would do that. I knew. Right? I said it for me. I was like, I'm going to mess up these guys' names. There's three. I told you to say BK. Three Bs. You know? BK. <laughs> we got runners on uh, first and second, I believe. Right. Weeders hits a deep a ball to uh, right field. Joy Record almost makes an amazing catch, but doesn't. And Adam Lynn makes a bad read on it, stops at third base, and that kind of set the motion for what ended up being possibly a big inning for the Nationals in the ninth inning to a kind of a disaster to finish the game. Yeah, I mean, uh, ironically, it seemed like Lind had a chance to score the fifth run twice in that inning, not just once. And he actually got hung up heading back to first base thinking Rickard had caught the ball. That's why he was slowed around second and only ended up at third. And, you know, what a dramatic moment I thought that was in the game to have Matt Weider step up as the tying run against the Orioles in the ninth inning. And, you know, you, you mentioned, I'm sure Brian felt this too, as Orioles fans were probably holding their breath knowing that Weeders can, can have had a, you know, the memory and the, and the uh, experience of, of being that clutch hitter in, in important times for the Orioles in the past. So it, it, it played itself out, and they only scored one run on that play to make it 6-4. to four. And, uh, you know, it was a tough situation for Lind in that situation. And interesting at that point, Bobby, and a lot of people talked about this as well, that Dusty Baker decided to pinch run Trey Turner at second instead of Brian Goodwin, maybe, who just got called up. And, you know, there's, there, you could even make an argument that maybe, you know, could he have put Trey Turner as the pinch hitter there? Right. Because Goody's, Goody's got good speed, too. He could have been the guy on second base. So there was a lot of interesting moments there that just kind of went away quickly because of the next batter and what happened to Goody on the first pitch. So first pitch, he dribbles down the first baseline to Chris Davis. Chris Davis obviously picks it up and steps on the bag. But then we see Adam Lenz a couple steps off the bag. Trey Turner's basically to third base, and it's kind of a blunder. The ball gets over to J.J. Hardy. Brian, and what are you, what are you looking at? In that situation, is, is are you just trying to force any out right there, or is JJ Hardy just trying well, to get whoever's closest? Yeah, I mean to be honest, I'm having flat at that moment. I'm having flashbacks to the Oriole teams from the early 2000s, where a game like that would get away, and that's the, you know a ninth inning lead like that would, would end up disappearing. But um, give credit to really the, the entire infield there for just being aware of everything. From from Davis making a nice grab, which was not the easiest thing to do. Uh, I know Steve and I on yard work talk all the time about how he's such an underrated fielder, uh, but to keep that in the infield was nice, and just just the heads up play to to really see what's going on from a situational standpoint. Um, and as, as you watch as him as he's running over to the left side of the infield there. You can see Caleb Joseph, you know, sort of running up the line there, home plate, and, and start giving commands and, and letting those guys know. And then 
um, yeah, it was a little chaotic there. I, I thought they were going to tag out Turner for the for the final out, but um, uh, why not go with Lynn? He's a, a little less speedy than than Trey <laughs> there, so like a half step. it was uh, it was kind of nice to, to 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 make to see that situation. It was chaotic for a second, but the Orioles I thought did a good job of keeping it in balance, and of course, uh, you know, coming home with the win there. So for me, it was weird because I didn't. At what point, why didn't Adam Lynn just break for home once they kind of committed to getting Trey Turner out? I think that would have caused a little more chaos because you never know if J.J. Hardy stops and throws the home and it could be an error and throw. Um, ball gets by, Adam Lynn scores, Turner's at third, and now you have the, the tying run or coming to the plate with a, a man on third base and no force out. So you never know what could have happened, but I, I think... I think you need to bail out your teammate there a little bit. I mean, you know Trey's in trouble. He can buy some time because he has speed. But I think right. it's the ninth inning, for crying out loud. It's not the third, the fifth, seventh. It's it's a deciding uh, play in the game, and you're not going to score the winning run by standing on third base. So right. you, you've got to, or the tying run, you've got to get your butt and head for home and just make the Orioles make another play. Yeah. The, that You know, the rundown, the, the, the ball was in their court, and... and you made a great point that, you know, absolutely J.J. Hardy would much rather have uh, to run around and try to stop Adam Lynn than try to stop Trey Turner. So we can argue until the Cats come home that Trey maybe made a mistake by being aggressive and hitting the third without looking because Bobby Henley told, you know, told him, the third base coach, that you got to watch Adam Lynn first. But also, you know, Lynn was less than aggressive in the ninth inning on two different times, and, and that kind of hurt the Nats there. Right. If you have to leave somebody in no man's land, you want it to be Turner because he's just he's so quick. And, and the, the odds are of, of the Orioles making a throwing mistake is it's tenfold uh, dealing with a guy like him versus Lynn. But right, because they have to throw. They home. Are. If they if they throw home, then you have to have Caleb Joseph make a play as well. It's not just J.J. Hardy tagging somebody with the right. ball already in his yeah. mitt. He's got to exchange it. He's got to throw home. And Lind is a pretty big dude. I know they don't allow collisions and all that stuff. But, um, you know, there could be a moment there where he dislodges then suddenly you've got trey turner on third base with uh, you know two away and the tying run to third so you know it could have been a uh, i just think in those moments you know you might as well just go for it because you're right. not going to have another chance. right and it does that's kind of where they killed the nationals the indecisiveness almost where lynn didn't know where he was going and then that kind of put trey turner in a situation where he didn't know where he was going and that it kind of, it kind of all blew up um, in their faces. And I will be curious, if I could just add one more thing, I will be curious to see how that carries over because we talked about how Gio had the rough first inning and then really settled in. So from a momentum standpoint, even though the Orioles led the entire time, I, I felt like the Nationals kind of picked up some momentum chipping away there throughout, especially in that ninth inning there. And then, you know, if they had somehow, even if they had tied it up and, and maybe it took it to extras but fell short, it maybe would have carried some momentum over there. But I feel like a play like that can just kind of take the air out of you. So it will be interesting to see uh, kind of moving forward into Tuesday's game two. Just just kind of see where, where their heads are at if they can move on again it's just one game uh we're still in bay a lot of baseball to play but it, it those little things can kind of stick with you especially if you're adam lynn maybe you kind of really are, are, are bumming hard about that well i mean I, that's a great point brian because i think you know even down four nothing this team is pretty confident and calm that they'll come back they've had 11 come from behind victories out of their 21 this year that's over half of their victories have come in come from behind fashion so they're confident that they can come back and they weren't worried about anything. Obviously, that was a blunder at the end. But uh, that's a good point. They they were not flustered by the 4 nothing or 6 nothing deficit. Right, and I think the momentum point is a good point, too, because it was a 6-2 game going into the eighth. Bryce Harper jacks a home run, Apo Bapo, and then this. And Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler says that's the first run that O'Day has ever allowed against the Nats. Right, that's impressive, too. And that was a rising ball that, for all, on the outside of the plate, that he pushed the opposite way, which is 
impressive in and of itself. Um, and then they get one more. So they had all the momentum going at the end of that game, looking like they were going to tie it, extend the game, and then they messed up. So you wonder if that does carry over. Or is it a situation where, okay, look, the, the Nats, and this is where we can go to game two tonight, the Nats have Max Scherzer on the, on the, on the bump tonight. Um, yeah, you, got, you let one get away after a rough start to the, uh, the, the game with Gio. Let's get back at this tonight. It's a hitter's this, – remind, this is the best offense in baseball right now. They scored the most runs. Um, Ryan Zimmerman had an off night, went 0 for 4, which is rare, but he's hitting lights out. Uh, obviously, Bryce Harper with the home run. This is a hitter's ballpark. This is an opportunity where, okay, are you going to let this one game get you down or are you going to bounce back and uh, take, uh, take the split in, in Baltimore? It'll be interesting to see how they do that. Brian, looking at tonight's game um, for the Orioles, obviously going against Max Scherzer, uh, the reigning National League Cy Young Award winner. What scares you? It's a power pitcher going against a power lineup. Is that something where the O's could thrive and kind of are licking their chops, being like, okay, we know he wants to pound us, or is it, okay, he could blow us away and strike out 10-plus? I mean, yeah, I mean, Scherzer's are so scary. Well, I think it, last year especially it seemed like every fourth start – he was flirting with a no hitter in, in, in about the fifth or sixth inning. And it was just like these crazy stats about how like 17 or 20% of his starts, uh, he took a no hitter into the sixth inning. So, but as you guys know, Max is not invincible. You know, he's had those starts, you know, when he, when you're a power pitcher like that and Steven Strasburg can certainly attest to this, uh, you're going to give up the long ball sometimes. And I, I think Max, Max pitched a game against the Mets in city field uh, about a month ago. And he, uh, he gave up a couple of home runs, right, right, uh, right early on there. So um, he's definitely a hittable pitcher. But when his stuff is on, I mean, he's 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 one of the top three pitchers in baseball. Um, I think what's a little bit scarier, at least from the Orioles side, is their own starting pitchers starting tonight um, in a ball. Menez. I know Steve and I talk all the time about how we just we feel so bad for this guy because he's such a good uh, guy in the clubhouse. He's a good teammate to have. Um, and we just can't seem to get it together. His inconsistencies, uh, his last two starts, he's only lasted three and a third innings in each of those. Um, his, his last appearance, he came in for relief in Boston uh, during that series and actually tossed three scoreless innings, um, but did allow three walks there. So the thing about Ibaldo is you can tell very early on um, how his night's going to go. And even if it does start out well, he's not so great at having that shutdown inning if, if it's a bend don't break type of situation. So um, certainly Max is capable of shutting down any offenses, even the Orioles. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking at Ebaldo because I think what's weird about this series is I think for the first time, um, it's going to come down to the bullpens in each of these games. I feel like these two lineups are so close that even if a team jumps out to a certain score early on, uh, by the time we get to the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings, it's going to be uh, maybe a safe situation for either the Nationals or the Orioles. And while the Orioles are still working on getting that bullpen healthy with Zach Britton on the DL, um, Darren O'Day, Brad Brock, Michael Givens, they've been great, but they haven't been invincible either. Um, you know, they've kind of run into some issues, as we saw last night, you know, base running blunder aside hey the Nats were looking pretty good to maybe win the game or at least tie it up and of course with the Nationals bullpen again we've seen Dusty kind of talk about how it's it's kind of a a patchwork system for the moment so this this series is very intriguing because as much as we look at the starting pitching and these these lineups uh, it's really in the the seventh eighth and ninth innings where we might see uh these these results come out so that that's a good point because um, coming into this series, my key, uh, if I were to have keys to the series for each team, mine for the Orioles would be get to the starter early. The quicker you get to the bullpen, the better. Coming into last night's game, the uh, the Nats bullpen had the worst ERA in the NL and third worst in the majors at five point five five zero. So 
the quicker you get there, I mean, they're 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 banged up, Byron. I mean, they've got three guys on the disabled list, and Sean Kelly, Coda Glover, and Sammy Solis. Blake Trina and Joe Blen are both sporting uh, ERAs above nine, and then the only guy who is you know, somewhat shown some consistency and success out of the Nats bullpen is uh, Matt Albers, who gave up the big three-run home run on Sunday. So, yeah, if, if, if the O's – I'm a Nats fan. I'm looking at this game. If the O's get to the Nats bullpen early, especially on a night where Max Scherzer is pitching, I'm, I'm a little concerned. Obviously, Camden Yard's a home run hitting park, and uh, Brian alluded to it. Five home runs now in the last three starts allowed by Max Scherzer. He's also given up nine earned runs in his last three starts combined which is a lot for a guy like him so you could have the ball flying out of the park again tonight if he can't harness his pitches early on and it is a patchwork bullpen they put uh, Joe Blanton and Blake Trinan into the game last night in low low leverage situations with the team down big uh, just to get him some work and Blanton allowed three hits Trinan did okay I think it was his first one two three innings since the first since uh, the opening day opening day opening day so um you know, yeah, they both teams have some bullpen issues, but I think I think the Nationals' bullpen is just, uh, you know, more than patchwork here. It is just hanging hanging by a thread right now. Uh, you got guys like Matt Albers, Eni Romero, and Jacob Turner as the most important. And Turner's interesting because you know Thursday's game is most likely going to be AJ Cole or Jacob Turner, depending on how much they use Jacob Turner here in Baltimore or tomorrow night. And you'd hope that with Scherzer and Strasburg, they won't have to go to the bullpen until Great. late. But, yeah, the bullpen's a major issue, and, and it's going to be the theme of this entire season for the, for the Nationals until the, the trade deadline and whether or not they, they can decide to get something going. You know, it's interesting that Mark Melanson jumps to the Giants, and they're having an awful season. They haven't even used him that much. You know, he, imagine what Melanson would mean to this team right now. Right, it'd be huge. And like I said, with my keys for the Orioles getting to the starting pitcher earlier, keep it close. For the Nats, it would be, you know, Peg him as long as you can. Get a build a big lead because again you can't trust your bullpen. How 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 much of a lead are you comfortable with them protecting? Um, we've seen them blow a couple leads early this season, especially against this offense in this ballpark. If the Nats are only up two or three runs heading into the seventh, and they have to hand it over to uh, Blake Trinan or a Joe Blanton, that can cause some concern. Um, and you got guys like Manny Machado, Adam Jones, Chris Davis, Mark Trumbo swinging the ball, and the, those those balls can get out of the park pretty quickly. And that that three run uh, leak could come to a three run deficit in the instant. Yeah, I mean Oliver Perez is considered a specialist. He went a full inning, so things are changing in the way they're using these guys. Matt Grace was called back up. He he has been inconsistent. Um, they don't have many many uh, go to guys. I mean, any Romero is is going to kind of have to be that guy. He's the only one that can bring the hundred mile per hour stuff and locate it. It's going to be critical. Jason Worth is going to DH tonight. So, do you put Brian Goodwin in left field? Uh, it'll be interesting to see how uh, Dusty puts his lineup together to see if they can score. Because that's absolutely the key. They're going to try to score six or seven runs a game and have a three or four run lead going into the seventh and eighth inning and hope they can hold it on. And then you hope that. Max can give you, and Steven Strasburg tomorrow night can give you those those uh, seven, eight inning outings. Uh, Brian, on the Orioles side, uh, we talked about Ubaldo. Let's go to tomorrow night. You got Wade Miley on the bump, and then Dylan Bundy going Thursday night. Um, I mean, I, I'm all about Dylan Bundy, and uh, I, I, watching him pitch this year has been phenomenal. Wade Miley has had kind of a, um, a resurrect season this, as well. He's pitching pretty well early on. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's when you look at the Orioles, their record is certainly uh, great. They're they're eleven games over five hundred and second best record in baseball. I think just behind those Yankees, who will seem to never lose again. But uh, same. But as as always, it's on paper when you look at the numbers the Orioles should not be this good they should not have this record um but a lot of it I think is due to that starting pitching which is um you could use the term overachieving I think people within the organization and people who watch this team every day would tell you that's that's a that's an unfair label this this staff is talented um young at some points uh, but they have veteran experience when you talk about guys like Jimenez and Wade Miley Miley's so interesting because his ERA I think is is top 10 in the in the American League at, at just north of two there but he seems to issue a lot of free passes so he's sort of the the definition of the bend don't break um and dylan bundy is just is becoming something special i mean without without missing words he's just his ability to throw his secondary pitches effectively particularly his slider um boy when he can start to really be in control versus left-handed hitters um that's that's the, the makings of something special and i know steve and i were talking about of course, if you're going to name the Orioles' best single pitch that they have to offer, it starts with Zach Britton's sinker, which is maybe with the best pitch in the entire game. Uh, but Dylan Bundy's slider is certainly uh, making a case for that to be one of the best pitches. But um, it'll be interesting to see. I think I, for some reason, if you were to ask me for predictions, I would say that the I would have said that the road teams would have won each game in this series. I thought the the Nationals were going to take these two in Baltimore just based on the targeted pitchers, but then uh, the Orioles would would rebound and take the two in DC. So, um, but that again, as we talked about, so much can change in terms of the bullpen and, and the lineups and things like that. So um, it will be interesting to see. But Miley is definitely surpassing uh, you know expectations uh, last year for sure. Uh, and Dylan Bundy just seems to have matured and and is really putting that that making that ace label uh, something for debate. That's interesting that you say that because I think uh, if I were to put a prediction on this series, I would have said the O's win the bookends and the Nationals win the two in the middle with uh, Scherzer and Strasburg going. But we we got to split either way over the four games. Um, it, let's I want to talk about Mike a little bit more because I asked. Uh, I wanted to ask about this earlier. Kevin Gosman last year, uh, last week in Boston, got ejected in the first inning or second inning, um, so he had a short outing. So we saw him on "quote unquote" regular rest, but it was a little extended rest because he didn't go a full game. Wade Miley is coming off a similar outing in which he got pelted by a comebackers. I think I believe it was Friday night and only pitched what two thirds of an inning. He only got two outs in the first inning, and then he was out. Is that "quote unquote" extra rest gonna? help him uh when he takes the mound tomorrow night and that's Parker. you think we'll see him a little more I, fiery i never think extra rest hurts a pitcher you know maybe in a game where there's a long inning they can kind of go a little bit cold but uh when it comes to days in between starts i think an extra day or two isn't going to make too much a difference um you're right that, that last start where he kind of got plunked on, on back-to-back hits which you, i don't think he could script that if you try no, no chance. um only only through 12 pitches and and in two-thirds of an inning there um so we'll be interested to see how he responds i don't know his his health status I, obviously if he wasn't 100 percent ready to go uh buck wouldn't be using him um but i tell you a left-handed pitcher against that that nats lineup could be a uh, could be great or it could be uh, <laughs> in quick trouble because man that lineup is just so balanced from top to bottom and we're seeing bryce harper hit lefties better than ever uh in his career we're seeing daniel murphy has always hit lefties pretty well get a good swing on it so the left-handed batters they do have are are hitting lefties pretty well. Then, of course, you got Zimmerman, Worth, Weeder's a switch hitter. Um, it'll be interesting. I, I find it – I don't think it's any coincidence that Kevin Gosman's best start of the season came after when he had basically had a short outing. I think that kind of uh, not only gave him 
health wise, gave him a little extra rest and he felt better physically. But he, maybe it was a kind of a mental thing where he did want, you know, I, I agree. It was, I thought he was unjustly tossed from that game. And I think he wanted to come out and pitch well um, in front of the home crowd and show that, you know what, okay, he, he, I'm turning this on for the season. I think the Orioles are just happy to be out of Boston, frankly. I mean, um, oh gosh, we could we could do a, a couple hours on, on that whole drama in Boston, but um, it's good for them to kind of be back home. And you can see they, ha- they haven't dropped a game yet, so it's, it's coming back, which is nice. Um, I'm just curious, we, what are your guys' thoughts on the fact that this Beltway series is so early in the year? I, I kind of always liked that it was a little bit later in the summer towards August, September. It is nice to see that both teams are, are contending and have great records, but I, I kind of like saving this this little rivalry for a little bit down the calendar. I don't know what you guys think. I'm all we we were talking about this last night in the uh, the web studio, the massive web studio here at Camden Yards. Um, yeah, I, I love the rivalry. Like I said earlier it's my favorite series, and I working it. <laughs> I kind of like that it's early, kind of get it because it's for us. Imagine it's the busiest week of the year, so I kind of like getting it out of the way. But I'm I'm with you as a fan. I would rather have this be in like middle August, late July. Um, you know, because right, look at what's going on right now. School's still in, so kids aren't going out in the middle of the week um, or going to ball games. The Capitals last night played a game six, a decisive game, or not a, a elimination game. So they'll play game seven tomorrow. The Wizards are in the middle of the playoffs. There's just so much else going on right now, and we're so used to this series being the highlight of this area whenever it's whenever they play each other. And now it's kind of taking the back burner because there's so many other things going on, and it, it is a little disappointing, I think. It's pretty amazing that both these teams uh, are, you know, pretty much have identical records right now. I think this is the probably the first time that they have, you know, both been at six sixty-seven when they faced each other, and and that's a product, I guess, because they've only played thirty games. But uh, it is it is pretty pretty amazing that both teams are as good as they are with the way that that uh, you know they started out. And so from that showcase viewpoint, it's pretty cool to have them them matching up. But I agree, I, I like it when it's later in the in the season. Dusty Baker was asked this yesterday, Brian, about it. Uh, I think from Peter Schmuck, who who, who talked about, uh, is it a, you know a tougher draw for these two teams because they have to face uh, good teams when maybe you know Oakland gets a break or San Francisco gets a break when they do the crosstown rivalries because one team is not as good as the other one. Uh, so that's kind of interesting too. That that the schedule is a little tilted uh, for these guys because they have to face such good teams and. You know, we're not really mentioning the fact as much, though, that the Orioles have dominated this series since 2012. It's 18-7 now the Orioles have over the Nationals. And, you know, I, I, you know people talk about rivalries, you know, just like Pittsburgh and the Capitals. Um, if one team's crushing the other one, it's not a rivalry. So right. um, the Orioles have certainly n- figured out over the years how to beat the Nationals. And I don't know if that's because it was just the matchups, uh, you know, do they take the rivalry more seriously than the Nationals do? You know, it hasn't really seemed like it's affected their seasons after the fact. But last year, the Orioles took the series and the Nationals went on to win the division. Uh, so, it, you know, it's interesting uh, dynamic. It just seems like the Orioles just match up well against the Nats. Definitely. And, and I, I, we talked last year about maybe one of the keys to this rivalry kind of taking the next step is a little bit of controversy. Um, I think both teams would like to avoid something like a bench clearing brawl or something like that, of course, but, um, but just a little spark would, would be nice. I, I, I can't really place my finger on why the Orioles seem to have the upper hand uh, against the nationals. I don't think that'll, that'll remain the case. I mean, the nationals are too talented uh, to stay down. I, I certainly don't think they will be swept from these, you know, this 
two game series and then the next two game series it's which is by the way that's really weird it, it should just be four games one series but yeah, you know that's neither here nor there <laughs> Pete Kurtzel would be would be screaming at that so yeah, yeah, um but um but I, yeah I I am curious and kind of at a loss as to why this rivalry seems so one-sided at the moment I, I mean you I it might just be a matchup thing I mean because I, again both teams are really good and for a couple of years now, especially since 2012, you can even argue that the Nationals have looked like the better overall team when you look at the lineup they've been able to put out, the starting pitching that they have. Um, I've always said that if you put these two teams together, you have a super team, and it's the best team in the league But because you take the starters from Washington and then the bats from and bullpen, honestly, from uh, Baltimore. It's just the best team in the baseball. So it's kind of funny how that works out. Um, but in, in terms of what team taking it more seriously – that's kind of hard to gauge. Um, I, I I heard Adam Jones talk about it um, last night. Uh, he you know he's kind of on along the lines of like yeah I mean it's it's always fun. We always like to beat up on those guys, but it, you know it is the first second week of May. So what what does it really matter in a 162 game season? It's more fun to beat these guys in August when we're both in pennant races or in playoff races. So um, it, I think playing the series this early kind of takes a little of the drama a little of the flair out of it um again not many people because we're not going to be talking about this series come september when we're chasing for october um but like the past couple years we have been because they played so late so yeah i think it's a a little bit of a mistake to play this game this early who knows why why the scheduling conflict um but it's it's always exciting always entertaining for these guys to play each other and I, i know the fans love it and um another another thought i had is that you know, if you're going to play this early and it's going to be four games, two, two in Baltimore, two in D.C., how come it's not a Thursday through Sunday series? You know, because that way you at least get a Friday night and two weekend days and you draw huge crowds. People would flock to those games regardless of whether or not, you know, other games are going on in other sports. Um, the weather's been beautiful during the day over the past couple of days. I mean, I, I think that would be the no-brainer if you're going to play this early. Make it a Thursday through Sunday kind of series. It's been very bizarre the yeah. way the schedule has has set up. Sorry, Brian. Uh, the, the, they've oh, they played the fl- the Phillies, the Flyers. They played the Phillies like eight hundred times already here in the first two months. They don't even play the Marlins again, and then they play the Marlins four straight times. Every single Philly series has been Friday, Saturday, Sunday. No offense, the Phillies are not that great a team, and so it it just hasn't had the passion or the draw that. I agree that this would be great if it's going to be during the school year. It'd be awesome if it was a Thursday through Sunday. And then the Yankees and Cubs just played over a weekend series, and obviously they had a huge 18-inning game on Sunday night, and that probably drew huge crowds. I mean, obviously the Cubs won the other defending World Series champions, and it's the Yankees, but I feel like you would get similar crowds. Uh, Brian, maybe, maybe you disagree, but if, if the Orioles and Nationals are playing over the weekend. Brian? Brian? It is it is interesting to see that they uh, the schedule works out that way, and it seems like every team has started off their their entire April uh, with divisional opponents. Um, so I think both clubs are probably happy to kind of branch out and, and play somebody else. But um, I just reading looking up some numbers here at just how similar these two teams have been since their postseason appearances in 2012 um when you just kind of match up their win totals 2013 the orioles had 85 wins the nationals 86 in 2014 both the orioles and nationals had 96 wins um in 2015 orioles had 81 nats had 83 and of course as we're sitting here on may 9th both baltimore and washington tied with 21 wins so i mean it's it's spooky how 
how differently built these teams are in terms of their strengths, uh, but how similar they are both with um, their ability to just get things done and, and make the playoffs. And they're both, of course, looking for that that that's next step to not only become a postseason team, but become a, a deep postseason team with World Series appearances and, and hopefully a title. You mentioned, like, uh, Brian, that what could also happen to amp this series up is like in a controversy. But along those lines, like, what about a big-name player going from one to the other? And we finally have that in Matt Wieters. I think that was the big storyline when Matt Wieters signed with the Nationals uh, in spring training. He's the – I mean, yes, there have been players that play for both teams, but he's by far the biggest name to not only play from both teams but go straight from one to the other over the course of a year um, and back-to-back seasons. And I think that is something that could – I mean, it's not going to intensify this rivalry, but it's something that adds to the flair of it all and the drama of it all. And imagine if Matt Wieters would have hit a three-run homer to tie the game last night. I mean, that would have been, um, you know, you couldn't write that up uh, in, like in Hollywood. So that would have been something special. Yeah, those first those first inning cheers and that ovation probably would have been long gone uh, if he'd hit the game-winning uh, home run for for the Nationals there. But it, you're right. I think Matt Wieters is definitely the biggest name to to go from one franchise to the other there. But um, that was a nice moment. I'm not sure we touched on that, but just uh, nice to see Wieters come back. I know he was very gun-shy about it. He's not one for the spotlight there, but it was nice for him to kind of acknowledge the, the crowd and, of course, for the crowd to sit there and say, hey, you know, you know, we, we certainly appreciate the service. I, I can't remember a prospect – uh, in the Orioles system that was as hyped as Matt Wieters was, even more than Manny Machado, even more than Dylan Bundy and Kevin Gosman. Uh, boy, if people don't remember, back in 2009 when Matt Wieters was, was debuting in May, uh, boy, it was it was a scene. And to see him come and and and, and have a nice salute there for, for the Orioles fans, that was, that was good to see. Just a classy guy there. I mean, I mean, growing up with the Orioles fans and the Orioles were not good for all those years when I was growing up, but Matt Wieters, to me, is... Him and Adam Jones and Matt Wieters first, I think, is he was kind of the face of the renaissance of the Orioles. I mean, it goes him, Jonesy, and Buck Showalter were the core group of guys that turned this franchise around and made them into contender and made them into the team that they are today. And I think that you saw uh, the Baltimore fans and the Birdland kind of salute that last night and recognize, you know, this is a big guy in this franchise. Um, he's a fan favorite no matter – you know, he had so high, such high expectations coming into his career – and you can argue whether or not he reached them. Uh, he's supposed to be the one to bring the Orioles back to the World Series, but he still did a lot for this club and for this city um, in terms of putting the Orioles back on the map. And I think you're 100% right there. So, uh, but, but it will talk about controversy. It'll be interesting to see if he goes from Baltimore to D.C. and wins a World Series with the Nationals and it was never able to do one in Baltimore. Controversy, that could add a little bit to between the, the, this rivalry. I think it certainly could happen. These two teams have never had a trade together. I mean, never the, had a trade. the Nationals have traded with every other Major League Baseball team and not the Orioles. And maybe that has something to do with Masson or not. I don't know. But uh, I thought that was you. always interesting. Um, yeah, and, and he's the biggest name. You know, uh, it would be like Jason Worth or, or I guess uh, – I don't want to use Bryce Harper, but it would be somebody like that. Well, it would be like Ryan Zimmerman, I that's think. A, I think that's a good Ryan example, Zimmerman yeah. coming over to the Orioles, um, which would, would be – you know, because that's he's the guy. You know, he's a lifetime national. Was one of their first draft picks, uh, Virginia guy, and he going right up two ninety five to play in Baltimore. That would I think that would be one of those things where national fans would be hurt to see him go. But like, hey, at least he's still close by. So, 
No, no. not not no. for you. They, not for no, UBK. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. I mean, there's got to be there's got to be uh, Orioles fans that are upset that Weeders is playing for the Nationals, right? Def- I saw someone uh, actually might have been Chelsea James of the Washington Post last night tweet that during that ovation, someone was screaming out "traitor," <laughs> but it's not like you know he he signed late in the off season. It's not like he actively you know came out and said, "Hey, I want to go play for the Nationals from day one." And, you know, he sat through. Uh, the offseason and spring training weighed his options, and then asked just happened to be the best fit. Correct. So yeah. I think trade is a harsh word to call Matt Weeders, especially someone who— I think did. it was just that one guy that yeah. was right in front of us. He one guy was obnoxious the entire, entire Oh, game. you heard him too? Oh, yeah. yeah. He was all over the all Maybe over a little the too many nitty boos. <laughs> There's always some rotten apples on the bunch, you know? Always some, yeah. Well, Brian, we appreciate you calling in, man. This is always a, a fun episode to do. Um, you know, it's a great series. It's good that these— these teams are good, and they're playing each other every year, and these games matter whether they're in May or in September. So we appreciate you hopping on. Uh, that's Brian Eller for the Yard Work Podcast presented by MassInSports.com. You can follow him at, at BrianEller1 on Twitter um, and um, catch, catch his stuff on MassInSports.com and obviously subscribe and listen to his podcast with Steve Molesky um, you know, on iTunes. Uh, subscribe, like, review, all that stuff. And you can also follow me and Byron on the, the Nat side, District 34. We're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud. Please like, rate, review, uh, share, spread the word. We appreciate everything, uh, all the feedback that we get. And l- let us know. Uh, Byron's at Mass and Kerr on Twitter. I'm at Bobby underscore Blanco. Please hit us up. Let us know if you have any questions or topics that you would like us to discuss. It's always fun interacting with fans, and we love doing it. And um, so, Brian, thanks a lot again for joining us. Um, and uh, thanks to everyone out there for listening. This has been the District 34 Yard Work Podcast Crossover. Have a good one, everybody. See you. See you.